0: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's our text this morning and it's our text for the next four Sundays counting today for the rest of this year and maybe in those fun four Sundays we'll scratch the surface of this great text John 3:16 I invite you to turn to it. And uh, if you use the Pew Bible, it's on page 1,262. Probably the most often memorized verse in the Bible. I don't think I've preached on it in 14 and a half years. That's probably not good. So I try to make up in these four Sundays. My guess is if I were to ask you, probably 90... Five, six, seven percent of the people in this room memorize this verse at some time in your life. I won't ask you to raise your hand because the other one or two or three percent might be embarrassed if you didn't raise your hand. Why don't you make it a hundred percent before we're done today or before this day is over. It is worth memorizing. It's no accident that this is right at the heart of our Sunday school. It's right at the heart of people's lives in every country of the world where Christ is named. It isn't everything. It isn't everything. Justification is not here. The glory of God is not here. The cross is not here. Election is not here. Calling is not here. There are great things that are not in this verse. Don't make this verse the sum of your theology. But it is a great, great, great sum of the gospel. And there are all kinds of ways to approach this verse. And if you read the Star, you know how I want to try to tackle it in four Advent Sundays There are four D's. D, A, B, C, D. The first one is the danger. And that's the one we're going to tackle this morning. The danger is that without Christ, we perish. In order that whoever believes on Him might not perish. The second D is the design of God to remedy this problem and to rescue us from danger. The design of God is His loving giving of His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. The third D is the D of duty. Not one of my favorite words, but a very important word. The duty... In order for you to participate in this saving love of God by which he rescues us from our danger is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in order that whoever believes, that's the duty. And the fourth D is destiny. The destiny of those who do believe is everlasting or eternal life. In order that we might not perish, but have everlasting life. I think we can get the whole verse, as much as a human might in four Sundays be able to get the whole verse, into those four D's. In fact, I I would commend to you to memorize it that way, so that if you take out a friend this year for lunch who doesn't know the Lord and they say what's special about Christmas to you? You can say well there are a lot of ways to explain it let me try this one there's a verse a lot of Christians know it by heart and then give them the four D's if we have little things tucked away in our mind like that God might be pleased to bless them as we have occasions to talk with family members who don't know him or people at work. I am so eager for God to move in this Advent season. I believe He is moving. I believe He was here in the first service. One one woman left who had been brought as a visitor by two members and very earnestly said to me, you really, really got to my heart this morning and I have some deep searching to do. she was surrounded by these two members. I said... God bless this seed. Don't let Satan pluck it now. So I really think if you would join me in prayer, like I asked you to in the star and like I ask you to right now, that God would come. Come. That's what Advent is about. Come. You know what I think revival is? I think revival is when the Holy Spirit in His sovereign timing moves in on not just one person. We don't call that revival usually. Although that's a glorious thing when he does it, one person here, one person there. But he comes in a people, in a pretty extensive way, and he creates taste buds, or he awakens old dying taste buds on the human soul. Taste buds that are meant to perceive or apprehend spiritual reality the way physical taste buds perceives and apprehends the sweetness of honey. What would you do if you were dealing with a person who had some kind of disease so that all of their taste buds had died? They were somehow dormant. And you had honey, best honey you'd ever tasted in a jar in your hand, and you wanted to persuade them, this is sweet. This is sweet and it makes your eyes bright. And you take some and you say, Oh, that is so sweet. And they take it and they put it on their tongue and they say, Feels like a rubber band. What would you do? Mount arguments? It's got certain molecules in it. It's sweet. There's nothing you can do. They might take your word for it, but that wouldn't mean much to their soul. The only way they're gonna say, you're right, that is sweet, is if something changes on the taste buds. Now that's the human condition. It's a tragic condition of the human soul that you can, you can go to a friend, you can, you, you all have relatives or friends like this, and you tell them, God loved the world. God sent His only Son to die for me. My sins are gone. I'm going to escape death and live forever in the presence of a God who loves me. And it lands on them It means nothing. Nothing. It's just blank. That's tragic. That's why we cry for revival. If you were just a humanist who believed that you could manipulate your religion and you could... You know, five arguments and some real good music and and a good speaker. And, well, we can make people alive. You know that's not true. You've witnessed enough. You've tried enough. You've prayed enough. You know it's not true. There's only one hope, and that's revival from the living God spreading in sovereign power upon a people, awakening taste buds so that when John 3.16 lands on the tongue of the soul, they say, Wow! That can't compare to the Vikings beating the Bears. Wait a minute, I said that wrong. The Vikings beating the Bears can't compare to that. Oof! I watched that game. (laughs) That was fun. But listen, I was at Doug O'Han's house when we watched that game. On that last pass, everybody went through the roof. We were all out of our chairs. That's because I've got sports taste buds. (laughs) But they don't mean anything, nothing, compared to spiritual taste buds. And if we don't have spiritual taste buds that make us come out of our chair for John 3.16, we're goners. We're just goners. And that's what this morning's sermon is about, being goners. And so I invite you to pray while I'm finishing our focus here on perishing. We'll start with the bad news, because the bad news is here. You'll never love the good news without the bad news. And the bad news is that without Jesus, we perish. For God so loved the world, that whosoever, they He sent His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. Now let's just stay with that for a few minutes this morning. And then we'll move on next week. Three questions. Number one, what does it mean to perish? Number two, why do people perish? Why perish? And number three, is it helpful to talk about perishing? Should I even preach like this this morning? Okay, question number one. What is it? Number one, there are four things that it is. It's... Being under the wrath of God. I get that from two places in this chapter. First, verse 18. John 3, 18. He who believes in Jesus is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Now what you hear in that text is that perishing is not merely a natural consequence of your life running out. It's the consequence of a judge bringing the gavel down in the courtroom of the universe and saying, Guilty, go to jail. That's perishing. Perishing is having God say, guilty, go to jail. Here's the other verse It's even worse. Verse 36, cross the page in my Bible, a little farther down. Verse 36. He who believes in the Son... Has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but, here it is, the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on him. That's awful. That's horrible. If you do not believe this morning, God's wrath is resting on you. And what John 3.16 holds out to you this morning is that the love of God offers and has found a way to rescue you from the wrath of God. Can you handle that? John 3.16 can rescue you from John 3.36. The wrath of God rests upon those who reject His offer. And the love of God draws us out from under it. Secondly, perishing means a fiery torment in the future. Staying with John, his other book, The Revelation, puts it like this in chapter 14, verse 10. The perishing will drink the wine of the wrath of God. Will drink the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's Revelation 14.10. In other words, perishing is not just dying at the end of your life. It is not going out of existence. So many people today are saying all that happens to unbelievers at the end of their lives is that they just, poof, go out of existence. Well, big deal. Any unbeliever would choose that. If you have no consciousness, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the wrath of God rests upon the unbelievers and that he pours out the cup of his wrath and his anger upon them and that they suffer in torment in the presence of the angels and of the Lamb. One celebrity, do you read this this week in the, in the Tribune? I don't know if it was in other avenues of news or not, but one celebrity whose name I will leave out said, I don't really want to go to heaven because it's perfect in heaven and I couldn't make any improvements and therefore I find that would be a very unfulfilling life. I want to go to hell because things are really bad in hell and I think I could make some improvements there. Now, people joke about hell all the time. Don't be a part of that. Don't be a part of that. Don't use it as a throwaway word when you're angry. And don't joke about it. That kind of levity will harden someday into an irredeemable callousness to these realities. It may already have. When you read that, join me in crying, at least on the inside, and praying, Oh God. Release this man from his bondage to levity about infinitely important things and help him to realize that nobody makes any improvements on hell not only because it is impossible but because when you are screaming in agony you improve on nothing but suffering. Don't joke about hell. Don't joke about hell. Now I was praying with the elders downstairs before the first service and just felt burdened by the fact that as I look off across the nation and watch evangelism taught and happening, um, this is not true of every means of evangelism by any means, but so much of our effort to commend the gospel today is it will make things go better for you here. You'll have more resources for your marriage and you'll get out of some bad habits and break some bondages. And uh, God will give you a more meaningful career and all kinds of things, all of which are true. But it, it, it just seems to gut the gospel to me and make it such that it might in fact for a generation be commendable and suddenly or maybe gradually... In a generation or two, the evangelical church wakes up and it's empty. It's tinny. It's just another little self-help program. And it's gone. It's gone. The gospel is gone. Because the gospel is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and deliver them from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 1.10 if we don't talk about wrath and the need to escape from the wrath of God and from eternal burnings, we gut the gospel of the greatness of its glory. That God has found a way to rescue people through His Son at great price from that awful destiny. Thirdly, perishing means separation from the glory of God. Second Thessalonians one nine. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. You know, in this room right now, the glory of the grace of God is manifest in probably 10,000 ways, if you have eyes to see. When a person is in hell, the only dimension of the glory of God they will perceive is wrath. That's all. Jesus said He makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust. He sends rain on the good and the evil. He gives you springtimes and, and harvests. God is pouring out His love on this planet day and night, holding us in being in our rebellion. That's all going to be gone. It's all going to be gone in hell. Separation from the glory of God. Fourthly, it is everlasting, perishing is everlasting, and it is irreversible. You can see that right here in John 3.16, that they might not perish but have eternal life. The opposite of perishing is eternal life Matthew 25:46 Jesus says there's coming eternal punishment Luke 16:26 says there's a great gulf fixed between them and us and nobody can cross from here to there or there to here It is eternal and irreversible there is no purgatory there is no second chance it is now or never. In fact, I think if the Lord were here, he would probably quote Second Corinthians 6 2 at this point and say, Now, now is the appointed time. Now is the day of salvation. Do not wait. Make peace with your Redeemer. So that's my answer to the first question. What is perishing? It's wrath, its fiery torment, its separation from God. And it's eternal and lasts forever. And you know why this moment in the service is especially important right now? It's because if any of you, God forbid, resists what I'm saying. And enters eternity unbelieving. And stands before the judgment seat of God. And you say, I didn't know. I didn't know so much was at stake. God will simply say to you, December 4, 1994 Bethlehem Baptist Church you were there by my appointment and John Piper preached on hell by my appointment and he warned you he warned you to flee from the wrath to come you knew you knew the second question is why Why? Perish. The answer is very biblically simple. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Or to put it a little bit more deeply, God is God. He is holy, He is just, He is good, He is loving, He is kind. And he merits and deserves our highest, most intense, most thorough, most unremitting love and trust and allegiance and joy and hope and obedience. And not to render that to him, being an infinite, God is an infinite transgression and deserves an infinite punishment. It's the nature of God that makes hell, hell. Final question. Is this helpful? I close with two stories where it was very helpful. I bear witness, hundreds of you probably would bear witness, that the wrath of God and the threat of being cut off from Him forever and burning in everlasting torment so frightened you at some point in your life that it drove you to the gospel where you found relief from the love of God. That certainly was true for me, has been true all of my life. It functions in a wonderful way today. And I thank God for the revelation of his wrath. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, probably the most popular hymn in America. He was a slave-trading, foul-mouthed, wretched, perverse sea captain. Had grown up in a Christian home and rejected it all. And he had hardened himself. The taste buds of his soul were dead until the storm came. And he woke in the middle of the night and the rope was rocking. And the captain ordered him up on the deck. And just before he got to the steps, he said, Get a knife before you go so we can cut the ropes. And another sailor went before him and was washed immediately right overboard. And John Newton stood there trembling at the bottom of that stepladder. And he went up, they lashed him to the wheel, and he drove the boat and survived. And his taste buds were awake. A few months later, he was in Londonderry. I didn't know this until I was reading yesterday. He was hunting in Londonderry, Ireland. And he wrote this. As I climbed up a steep bank, pulling my shotgun after me in a perpendicular direction, it went off so near my face as to burn away the corner of my hat. And he blessed God for the dangers in his life. For the almosts of destruction. And he came to the Lord. And he wrote that verse. Remember the verse? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear the wrath of God. And grace my fears relieved by the love of God. And that's got to happen. I pray that that will be happening in this room. That grace will teach you to fear and awaken the taste buds, and grace will teach you not to fear by awakening more taste buds to the love of God. One last illustration. 1985 in this church, a young woman came into my office living in sin. Blatant, unrepented sin. I counseled her. She wrote me in 1992 to tell me what happened. 1985, I wonder whether you remember a very much younger me sitting in your office and telling you I was afraid God would have to use a car accident or some other awful event to get my attention. You pointed out that the consequences of my deliberate choice to continue sinning would be nothing short of hell itself. No one had ever, she underlines ever, no one had ever before told me I was headed for hell. Missionary kid that I was. Saved, she put in quotes, at age of six. It was a turning point in my life, and I have wanted to thank you and tell you that ever since. I assured my mom that a warning such as that 1985 conversation made me feel all the more loved after I heard what you really think of hell. That you cared enough to tell me, a stranger at that time, means more than ever with the echo in my ears. My answer to the last question, is it helpful, is, I hope so. I hope so. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him might never, 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 but have everlasting life. Don't put it off. Prayer teams are here at the front. If you want to pray with them afterwards about anything, if you want to sit in your pew and deal with the Lord, if you want to talk to me or any on the staff or anybody, we're ready. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, this is a precious Advent season. It means so much to us to remember that you sent your Son... You sent your son, your only son, your precious son, your infinitely valuable son, your sinless son, your utterly deserving of life, not death, son, for us sinners. And we thank you. Together as a congregation, we say yes and amen to our deliverance. Now, Lord, draw people to yourself. Give them the taste buds they need. Bring revival to our church. Through Christ, I pray. Amen.